In the 10th chapter of the book of Luke, we read in verse 25, where it said, Behold, a certain lawyer stood up and tempted him, saying, Master, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He said unto him, What is written in the law? How readest thou? And he answering said, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul, with all thy strength, with all thy mind, and thy neighbors thyself. And he said unto him, Thou hast answered right, this do, and thou shalt live. But he willing to justify himself, said unto Jesus, And who is my neighbor? A certain lawyer, we're not told the lawyer's name. It's very common in the scriptures to read expressions like a certain man or a certain lawyer in the name never be given to us. This is especially the case in the four Gospels. In fact, the only exception I know of is found in John 11, 1. So there was a certain man that was sick whose name was Lazarus. Here we're told exactly who the man was. But in all other cases, we just saw there was a certain man or a certain lawyer, etc. There were many lawyers in that day. The lawyer in biblical days that's under consideration is somebody who was expert in Moses' law. We're talking about that which is in the religious context. They were especially, uh, you know, informed and supposed to be at least experts in Moses' law, the first five books of the Bible. So here's a, a certain lawyer has come to Christ with a question. Now, I do read over in the book of Titus 3 and 13 about another lawyer. His name is Zenos. And Paul tells Timothy or Titus to bring Zenos, the lawyer, and Apollos with you. Now, apparently, this was a good combination. Apollos was a man eloquent in the Scriptures, mighty in the Scriptures. And Zenith was a lawyer, so they worked hand in hand, and Paul wanted them both to come. But apart from Zenith, every time we read of a lawyer in the Gospels, they're always coming with a question in an attempt to tempt Christ. You notice the difference between the Lord tempting someone and the devil tempting someone. Now you might say, well, Brother Lawrence, I, I read in the book of James chapter 1 where it says uh, that God tempteth no man. Let no man say that God tempteth any man, for God tempteth no man and cannot be tempted. Yes, you do read that. And I would like to point out here that uh, word study is always important, but the Lord had his Bible written where if you study the context, that will give you the understanding of words. In the book of Genesis 22.1, you'll find where it says, And God tempted Abraham. You say, well, there's a contradiction. Well, it's not, because if you read the context of Genesis 22, you'll find that God was proving Abraham. And later, that's what the word means. But everybody hadn't always had access to dictionaries and access to word studies and go back and read the original meaning of Hebrew and Greek and all of that. And while that can be very helpful, the context will always explain the definition of a word. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 and verse 13, Paul said, I will not have you ignorant, brethren, concerning them which are sleeping Christ, that you saw not, even as others which have no hope. For we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so those which are asleep in Jesus shall he bring with him. And this we say unto you by the word of the Lord, that we which are alive and remain shall not prevent those which are asleep in Christ. Now that word prevent literally means precede. You know, well, how would I know that, Brother Lawrence? Well, just read the context. If you read the context, it's obvious Paul is stating here an order. We which are alive and remain shall not prevent, that is, we shall not precede those which are sleeping in Christ. 
The Lord's people have not always had access to dictionaries and encyclopedias and Greek lexicons and all that kind of stuff. And while I have all those, and they can be very helpful and very beneficial, uh, just study the context, and it'll tell you exactly what's under consideration. So James tells us, let no man say when he's tempted, he's tempted of God. Don't say that, he says, because God tempteth no man. But every man, when he's tempted, is drawn away of his own lust and enticed. Read the context, and you talk, you'll find that it's talking about something entirely different than Genesis 22.1, when the Lord over here tempted Abraham. We find in Matthew chapter 4, where the Lord goes into a high mountain after he's fasted for 40 days and 40 nights to be tempted of the devil. The devil is always tempting God's people, trying to show them uh, how inferior they are and how far they fall short of God's standard. And when God tempts or tries us, it's not like what James is telling us, but it's to reveal our character and to sharpen our character and to test us in that regard, you see. And Abraham passed with flying colors, did he not? He did exactly what God told him to do, walking by faith. So here is a certain lawyer, and he comes tempting, comes tempting the Lord Jesus Christ's question, what good thing shall I do to inherit eternal life? That's the first question. The second question is asked by the Lord. He says, what saith the law? How readest that? Two questions, question two and question three. Well, the lawyer read the law exactly correct. He did what the Lord did when he answered another lawyer over here in Luke chapter, excuse me, Matthew chapter 22, when he asked the Lord, what's the great commandment in the law? And the Lord said, the greatest commandment is love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, all thy soul, all thy strength, and all thy might, and love thy neighbor as thyself. The Lord condensed the Ten Commandments. Ten Commandments, He condensed them into two statements. The first statement will cover the first four commandments. Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, all thy soul, all thy might, and all thy strength. The second one, thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself, covers the next six. So the Lord combined these ten into two. And so the lawyer here responds in like manner. The Lord tells him, he says, thou, what thou sayest is right, this do, and thou shalt live. Somebody says, well, that sounds like he's telling him that he can obtain eternal salvation by doing something. No, it tells you the very opposite. It tells you the very opposite. He's letting this man know that you would have to keep the law in total perfection. That you'd have to love the Lord thy God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, and all your strength 24-7. You'd have to love your neighbor as thyself 24-7. So I asked you the question. Have you loved your neighbor this past week 24-7 as yourself? Have you loved the Lord thy God this past week 24-7 with all your heart, all your soul, all your might, and all your strength? I think the answer is very obvious. I don't know of anyone who has loved the Lord thy God. That's the goal. That's the standard. That's what we should be striving to do every single day is to love our great God and our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ with all our heart, all our soul, all our might, and all of our strength. But have I accomplished that? No, I have not. In order to obtain eternal life by doing that, I would have to love him perfectly, completely, totally, without fail, 24-7, every day that I lived upon the face of this earth. The Lord's telling him right the opposite. Then we got all these other wonderful verses in the Bible like Ephesians 2, 8. For by grace are you saved through faith, that not of yourselves. It's the gift of God, not of works. Not of works, lest any man should boast. Titus 3 and 5. Not by works of righteousness, which we have done, 
But according to his mercy, he has saved us with the washing regeneration and the renewing of the Holy Ghost. 2 Timothy 1 and 9, who has saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was given us in Christ Jesus before the foundation of the world. Very clear, grace was given us in Christ Jesus before the foundation of the world. It's not based upon our works. Romans 9 and 11, for the children having not yet been born, having done neither good nor evil, that the purpose of God according to election might stand. Not of works, but of him that calleth. Very clear, not of works. It's an election not based upon works. When Paul wrote the letter to the Galatians, the theme of the book of Galatians is that Paul is laboring with this church to correct uh, the error that had crept into it by those who came back trying to get them to go back from the teachings of Paul back under the teachings of the law. So we read here, in Galatians 3.11, where he says that no flesh shall be justified by the works of the law, it is evident, for the just shall live by faith. Notice what he says. That no flesh, no man shall be justified by the law, it is evident. The, the evidence is there. It's, it's abounding. It cannot be overthrown. The evidence is no man shall be justified by the works of the law. Then take a look at a question in verse 21, chapter 3, Galatians. Paul asked the question then, is the law against the promises of God? If that be the case, is the law against the promises of God? And he says, God forbid, for if there had been a law which could have given life, very righteous would have been by the law. If there had been a law that could be given, where righteousness could be obtained in the sight of God, then that's the way it would have come. The implication is it was not. Then take a look at the last verse of chapter 2, where Paul says, For I frustrate not the grace of God. A lot of God's people talk about grace, they hear about grace, they think about grace, but they frustrate grace because they try to mix works in with grace. That's why Paul said in the book of Romans chapter 11, if so grace is no longer works, otherwise grace is no more grace. If it's works, it's not of grace, otherwise works is no more works. It's like oil and water, they do not mix. So he said, I frustrate not the grace of God, for if there had been a law which had given life, of, excuse me, if Christ has come by the law, then Christ is dead in vain. Christ didn't die in vain. He did not die in vain. If Christ has come by the law, if that's the way it came, then Christ died in vain. The Lord is teaching this man what the Bible teaches in many various places. That the law was good, it was good for a reason, good for a purpose. Go to Hebrews 10.1. For the law, which was a shadow of good things to come, and not the very image of the things therein, could never by those sacrifices make the comers thereunto perfect. Never did. Never made one person perfect. Not one. And then in verse 4 it says that the blood of bulls and goats cannot remit sin, cannot remove sin. Very clear. What was the law for then? The law was to reveal unto us the importance of the Lord Jesus Christ coming to fulfill the law. It was to remind us that we were sinners in need of God's grace, in need of the perfection of the life of the Lord Jesus Christ. So when people talk about grace, oftentimes it's I believe in grace if, I believe in grace but, and the if and the but represent something man must do. If you do that, then you've got oil and water trying to mix them up together. It just doesn't work. It's either all the Lord, it's nothing at all. It's, from the, it's of the Lord from beginning to end, from first to last. So the lawyer comes with a question. Same question the rich young ruler asked, if you remember that, read Matthew chapter 19. Good master, what good thing shall I do to inherit eternal life? 
That was his question. That was his mindset. That was a mentality. And the Lord showed him just what the Lord's going to show this man. The impossibility of that. He says, thou knowest the law. And the Lord gives him commandment number five, six, seven, eight, and nine. Left off ten. The man said, well, I've kept these from my youth up. He was a very confident young man, wasn't he? In his own eyes, in his own uh, perspective himself, he felt very confident that he kept these laws that God gave him from his youth up. Now, we're talking about keeping the law of perfection, my friends. The Lord said, well, you lack one thing. He said, well, what is it? I can just see it now. Well, just tell me what it is. I'm sure I passed this one as well. He says, go and sell what thou hast and give to the poor and come and follow me. And the Bible says the man went away very, very sad because he had great possessions. He didn't like the answer the Lord gave him. The Lord showed him that he was covetous, that he had broken commandment number 10 for sure. He was a covetous individual. He did not want to separate himself from his earthly possessions. He didn't want to separate himself from his earthly goods. The Lord, you know, you, you think... You think this Bible's not given the divine inspiration? What man could have dreamed up all that? What man could have decided one day, I'm going to write a story about a rich young ruler coming to the Lord, and here's how it all works out. If you just read the Bible sincerely and seriously, you'll understand no human mind could have written this book here. Uh, men, God used men to pin the words down, but it's the divine man, man, uh, mind of God that's on display. I can assure you that. Any serious Bible student, as you read the Bible, knows no human mind could put together what this Bible's put together from Genesis to Revelation. So the lawyer comes. Here's the question. The Lord asked him two questions. And then the Bible says the lawyer, willing to justify himself, says, well, who's my neighbor? He should have known who his neighbor was. His neighbor is spelled out in the book of Leviticus. He's an expert in the law. You go over there, that word neighbor, it means companion, it means associate, it means father, it means son, it means neighbor, it means wife, it means daughter, it means uh, anybody that comes along your pathway that has a need and you can do something for them, they become your neighbor. We think of a neighbor in a different way, don't we? So who's your neighbor? You're asking somebody who lives right beside you. That's not the definition of a Bible neighbor, not the definition at all. You got good neighbors? Yes. They mind their business, I mind mine. They stay in their yard, I stay in mine. <laughs> That's the definition of a good neighbor in this present day in which we're living. We only see each other. You see them coming, you lock the doors, turn off the lights. You don't want to be bothered. Biblical definition of a neighbor is quite different. Quite different. This man should have known the definition of a neighbor. He's the lawyer. You see, what, what if the Bible just said a certain man came to the Lord with this question and didn't tell you it was a lawyer? Would it make a difference in the story? Of course it would. And the Lord's going to answer this by talking about a man who went from Jerusalem down to Jericho. On the way down to Jericho, he's met with thieves and they rob him, they beat him, they leave him half dead. And there's going to come along a certain priest and then a Levite and a Samaritan. And before I get into that, I want to ask you the question. If this story read like this, would it make a difference? And the Lord said, a man went down from Jerusalem to Jericho, fell among thieves, and a certain man came along. 
passed by on the other side. And then a certain man came along, passed by on the other side. Then a certain man came along and helped the man. That make a difference in the story? It makes a great deal of difference in the story. You need to understand who a Levite was, who a priest was, and who a Samaritan was for this story to make any sense and to have a real impact. So the Lord says, a man went down from Jerusalem to Jericho. We got two cities here. About the only thing they got in common, they both begin with the letter J. In fact, the first three letters of each word is J-E-R, right? Jericho and Jerusalem. These cities were not far apart geographically, but they were miles and, and tremendous miles apart in terms of what they represent and their significance. Jericho. What, what comes to your mind with Jericho? Well, I'm sure most of you say, well, I remember that's where Joshua and them marched around, wasn't it? And you're exactly correct. Go back to Jericho was the first city that was captured when Israel crossed Jordan's river to go into the land of Canaan. It was a great fortified city. It was one of several cities that the spies described in Numbers chapter 13 when they came back and said there's giants in the land and there's great wall cities, plural. Great wall cities. You know, uh, I've read where archaeologists have gone to Jericho trying to discover enough evidence uh, to support the truth of the Bible concerning Joshua's conquest of Jericho. And they seem to have failed to do this. And so it ends like this. And the scholar said, don't you know? And the scholar said, the scholar said that in Joshua's day, Jer Jericho was no more than just a little fort. Now you want to believe the scholars, you want to believe the Bible. The Bible says there was great walled cities in the land. There was a, a crew that went over, an archaeology crew went over in the 1950s, and they found evidence of two walls, double walls, uh, like uh, uh, 12 foot thick, one is six foot, uh, six, six foot thick in the other. But I don't need that to believe that. All I need to do is read the Word of God, and I believe it. The Word of God says there were great wall cities over there, and you think Joshua had to march around that city one time a day for six days, seven times on the seventh day, and then the Bible says, and the walls fell flat for just a, a very weak, you know, community there or, 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 or structure? I think not. This was a great walled city, Jericho was. And then when the victory is obtained, we're going to find where Joshua cursed that city, that the city should not re be rebuilt by them. And for a long time, hundreds of years, there was not a rebuilding of the city of Jericho. Jericho literally means the moon city. Jericho uh, is a city of palm trees. It's a very tropical environment down there. It gets real hot in the summer. In the wintertime, it's a real nice place to go, kind of like Florida. When people flock down to Florida, they call snowbirds. They go down to Florida, and they like to go down in the wintertime because it's just warmer weather. They like that rather than the cold weather. That's kind of the way Jericho was. You have ancient Jericho, is what I'm talking about here in the book of Joshua. Then you've got modern-day Jericho, but you've also got, uh, you know, New Testament Jericho, and you've had a lot of experiences of the Lord along the Jericho Trail, so to speak. The two blind men, blind Bartimaeus, where they take place, right outside of Jericho. Jesus Christ was baptized in Jordan's River near Jericho. Jesus Christ was on top of the mountain of temptation, very near Jericho. And then you'll find um, uh, Jericho again to be the city uh, where there was much activity, such as Zacch Zacchaeus, the rich publican. Uh, he 
He was right there at Jericho and he heard Jesus was coming by Jericho and he come running, you know, and climbed up the sycamore tree. All these things took place very near around the city of Jericho. This man went from Jerusalem to Jericho. Jerusalem means the city of God. In 1 Kings chapter 10, we are told that Jer Jerusalem is the city of God. The Lord Jesus Christ told his disciples in Matthew uh, chapter 5, he says, let your yea be yea and your nay nay. He says, swear not by heaven which is God's throne, nor the earth which is his footstool, nor Jerusalem which is the holy city. Jerusalem is God's city, and a city that God chose to put his name there, and he put the temple there. God chose the city. Man did not. God did. So here's Jerusalem. By the way, Jerusalem is about 2,550 feet above sea level, and Jericho is 800 foot below sea level. All right, anytime that you leave Jerusalem, you're going to go down. Now, Jericho is north of Jerusalem. Now, generally speaking, when you're talking about going somewhere, and you're going somewhere north, you say you're going to go up. If you're going somewhere south, you say you're going to go down. Last Wednesday, we went down to Atlanta. Yesterday, we came up to Nashville, you see. But over here, concerning Jerusalem and Jericho, you're going to find where Jerusalem is far higher up than Jericho is. So anytime you left Jerusalem, you went down. Elevation-wise, you went down. But there's a significance here. Again, Jericho is to the north. But it says this man went down from Jerusalem to Jericho. Now, up and down is important in the Word of God. It's very important. You go over here to the 12th chapter of the book of Genesis, and you're going to find where the Bible says there was a famine in the land, and Abraham went down into Egypt. We're told twice in the book of Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 30, in the opening verses, Isaiah chapter 31. Woe to them that go down into Egypt. In 1999, I was blessed to go over to the Bible lands, what I call it, and also to Egypt and seen the pyramids and everything. It was a wonderful, wonderful experience. And, uh, but the people back home told Karen to tell me that the Bible said, people always love to tell the preacher the Bible said, said, woe to them that go down to Egypt. I said, you tell them that I'm not going down to Egypt for, for help. It says, woe to those who go down to Egypt for help. I'm not going down to Egypt for help. I'm going down there to sightsee. I'm going there to look around. <laughs> I don't intend to stay there. And I'll tell you what, I felt great when I left there. I felt really good when I left. And when I seen all I wanted to see, I was happy to get out of there. Woe to them that go down into Egypt. But let's take a look at Psalms 122, verse 1. And David says, I was glad when they said unto me, let us go up into the house of the Lord. Isaiah 2 and 1. And in that day shall the mountain of the Lord's house be established in the top of the mountains, and all nations shall flow into it. Up and down in the Bible is significant. When you go up, when you go to the house of God, you're going up. When you leave the house of God, you're going down. Jerusalem is a city that was a city of God. Jerusalem was the holy city. And it was on three, it was in a mountainous area. It was on three mountaintops, you might say, or hills up there. That's where it was located. So indeed, when you left Jerusalem, you would go down as far as your travels. But when it says he went to Jericho, it says he went down to Jericho, even though Jericho is to the north of Jerusalem. And on this road, they're about 40 miles apart. Well-traveled road. But the road had all kind of places where thieves could 
get behind and hide themselves until somebody came along. And then, of course, a thief, his whole intention is to rob you and to take you of what you've got to separate you from your possessions at your expense. And so they did right here with this man. This man went down from Jerusalem to Jericho and on the way down he was met with thieves and they beat him and they robbed him and they left him half dead. Now they didn't kill him. They, his life was, they were not after his life. They were after what he had. But whether he lived or died didn't really matter to him. They left him half dead. Now how can you be half dead? <laughs> the Bible teaches me that you can be totally dead and yet alive at the same time. Ephesians 2, 1, Paul says, And you hath he quickened who were dead in trespass and sin. Here's somebody dead in trespass and sin that's walking around and breathing and eating and sleeping and drinking, etc. He's alive, but he's dead at the same time. In the book of Jude, when Jude is describing the wicked of this world, he describes them as being twice dead, plucked up by the roots. Twice dead. How can you be twice dead? Well, you mean dead in trespass and sins. And you'll be dead to the things of God. And of course, you can be dead when it comes to experiencing a corporal death. So you can be twice dead, you'll be half dead, and you'll be altogether dead. This man's left to be half dead, which I guess means he was half alive. He's half dead. The thieves come and they rob him. You know, <laughs> there's a lot of thieves in this world. And you never know where you're going to find them. And you need to be careful where you go and what you do and the places you... Uh, you know, a tent and your associates, etc. Because there's a lot of thieves in this world. People are always trying to hack into your, your bank account. People are always trying to steal your identity. We live in a wicked, cruel, wicked, cold, a wicked, dark world, evil world we live in right here. And there's thieves all around us. And this man left the place he should have stayed. This man left Jerusalem and went down to Jericho. And every time you leave what Jerusalem represents, which is the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, you go down. You don't go up. You go down. This man went down. And the Bible says a certain priest come along. A certain priest walked over to the other side and just kept on going. Then it says there was a Levite that came along, and the Levite actually came over and looked at him, and then he passed over to the other side. Now, a Levite, you know, was part of the tribe of Levi that when Israel occupied Canaan's land, they were all given a possession in the land of Canaan and inherited the land of Canaan except the tribe of Levi. Levi was to be supported by the other 11 tribes because they were going to minister to the things of the temple, the things of the tabernacle, etc. But not every Levite was a priest. Every priest was a Levite, but not every Levite was a priest. But here we have a Levite and we have a priest. We have two here. Two, who should have been very informed concerning the law and should have known and understood what it was to love thy neighbor as thyself. But they're missing something very important. They're missing something that the next man that comes along has. He has something they don't have. The next one that comes along is a Samaritan. So what's the next of a Samaritan? The Lord is dealing here with a Jewish lawyer. A Samaritan was part Gentile and part Jew, and the Samaritans didn't like the Jews, and Jews didn't like the Samaritans. But here comes along a Samaritan, and he sees the man. Now I want you to notice the sequence of things that takes place here. 
Verse 33, but a certain Samaritan, as he journeyed, came where he was. That was the first thing we need to take notice of. He came where he was. And when he saw him, he had compassion on him. I want to think about that subject of compassion here just for a few minutes this morning. He came where he was and he had compassion on him when he saw him. Compassion does not exist in everybody. Compassion is something that exists in the hearts and souls of God's children who have been born of the Spirit of God. You have the potential to exercise compassion toward other people. Compassion and mercy are very closely connected to each other. You're going to find at least 14 times in the four Gospels where the Lord Jesus Christ had compassion on individuals. We look over here in the book of Matthew chapter 9, the last couple of verses. And when Jesus saw the multitudes, he was moved with compassion. And he saw them, and he says, True, the harvest is plentiful, but the labors are few. He saw the multitude as sheep having no shepherd. It concerned him. He was moved with compassion. I want you to notice, he was moved with compassion. He said, The harvest truly is plentiful, but the labors are few. Pray ye therefore, the Lord of the harvest, he might send forth the laborers into the vineyard. Now, we should all want to be a, a laborer in the house of God, a laborer in the kingdom. But Jesus said in that day there were few of them, and we should be praying that the Lord would send forth laborers into the vineyards. Why? Because, notice what he said, he had compassion on the multitudes. The, the, he says, the, the, you know, they were plentiful, but the laborers were few. We come to Matthew 14, 14. And the Lord Jesus Christ saw the multitudes. And he had compassion on them. And he healed their sick. When you notice each category about the Lord having compassion, you're going to notice that he was moved. And sometimes there were multitudes, sometimes there were individuals. So here multitudes again. He saw the multitudes. He was moved with compassion and he healed their sick. In Matthew 15 you're going to find where, again, the Lord sees multitudes. And he's moved with compassion toward the multitudes. Moved with compassion toward them. And he saw that they were faint and they were hungry. And this is what led into him feeding the 4,000 on this occasion. You know, the Lord fed the multitudes twice. He fed the 5,000 men besides women and children with five loaves and two fishes. And then he, uh, he fed the 4,000, which is what's under consideration in Matthew chapter 15, the 4,000 with seven loaves and a few small fishes. The disciples wanted to send them away. Disciples didn't have what Jesus had on this occasion. They didn't have compassion. Jesus had compassion on them, and he told the disciples, uh, you know, to have them all sit down. The Lord took those seven loaves and those few small fishes, and he blessed it in such a manner and way, and multiplied it in such a manner and way, that they were all fed and filled, and they took up seven basketfuls. In the case of the 5,000, they took up 12 basketfuls. That's what led to this miracle, was Jesus being moved with compassion. Now I want to pause here and take a look at Paul writing to the church of Colossae in Colossians 3 and 12. And he said, put on therefore as the elect of God. Notice how he identifies those he's writing to here. Put on therefore as the elect of God, bowels of mercies, long-suffering, forgiveness, etc., etc. But it starts off with bowels of mercies. That's inward affection that we all have right inside our hearts and our souls. He says you need to put that on. You need to display that, manifest that. 
So we all have this potential, this capability of doing that. Here, Jesus Christ, our great example in all things, is doing that. He's moved with compassion when he sees the multitudes. And he says, pray therefore that the Lord of the harvest might send forth the laborers into the vineyard. He said, the laborers are few, but there's multitudes of the Lord's people. Then he sees multitudes. He's moved with compassion. He heals the sick. Then there's multitudes, and they're hungry, and the Lord is moved with compassion. And he's going to feed the 4,000 with seven loaves, just a few small fishes. He was moved with compassion time and time and time again. You come to Mark chapter 1, and there's a leper, and he comes to the Lord, and he says to the Lord, If thou wilt, thou can heal me. Now notice he said, if thy will, that is, if it's according to thy will. You know, that's an expression I hear so little of anymore. If it be the Lord's will, if it be the Lord's will. And James warns us not to say what we're going to do tomorrow, but say when tomorrow comes, we do what the Lord wills. It reminds me of the story of the man going down the road, and he's leading a prize cow. And he passes his neighbor. His neighbor said, where are you going? He said, I'm going to go down there and sell my prize cow. I've got a good price waiting for me. He said, well, you mean you're going to go sell the Lord with it? He said, the Lord ain't got nothing to do with this. He said, I raised that cow. I fed that cow. I took care of that cow. I made all the arrangements. I made the deal. It's all set. Well, the next day he sees a man coming back. No cow with him. But he's all beat up and he's tattered. His clothes are torn. He said, what in the world happened? He says, I got robbed on the way down. Somebody stole my cow. He said, well, where are you going now? I'm going home, Lord willing. I guess he learned a lesson about Lord willing, right? <laughs> Lord wasn't uh, in the matter going down. He sure wasn't in the matter coming back. If thou wilt, thou can heal me. And the Bible says the Lord had compassion upon him. And the Lord healed him. The Lord healed him. We find in Mark chapter 5, there's a man we refer to as a wild Gadarean. And he was really wild. He dwelt among the tombs. He had no clothes on. He was a man of great power and great strength. And they tried to, to, to tame him. And they put fetters and chains upon him. And they tried to do all they possibly could to tame this man. But they were unsuccessful. But the Lord come along. <laughs> you know, things always change when the Lord comes along. <laughs> Isn't that right? When the Lord comes along. So the Lord comes along. Just like those two blind men, blind Bartimaeus being one of them there. In Mark 10, they were blind sitting by the wayside, but they heard that Jesus was coming along. And blind Bartimaeus cried out to him, O thou son of David, have mercy upon me. And the Lord said, Bring him here. But before he said that, the disciples wanted to be quiet. Wanted to be quiet, like they thought he was going to really bother Jesus. Jesus rebuked them, told them, bring the man to him. And the Lord gave him a sight. The Lord gave him a sight. Here's this man here, and he can't be tamed by men. He's a wild man, to say the least. But the Lord comes along. And the Lord, in one encounter here, tames the man. Cast all the devils out of him. He said, what's your name? He said, my name is Legion, which means many devils. And the Lord cast them all out of him. And we find the Bible telling us now the man was sitting, clothed, and in his right mind. 
Here's what the Lord told him to do. The Lord says, there's a lot in this story. I just hit the high spots, of course. And the Lord told me, he says, go home to thy friends. There's more than one account of this. Read both counts. Go home to thy friends and show them what great things the Lord has done for you. Go home to thy friends and tell them what great things the Lord has done for you. He was going to tell and he was going to show what great things the Lord had done for him and had compassion on him. That's part of the story. That's part of the testimony. He was to go and he was to tell. He was going, he was to show, and he was to tell what great things the Lord had done for him who had compassion on him. In the seventh chapter of the Gospel of Luke, the Lord and a great multitude of his disciples are coming to a city called Nain, N-A-I-N. As they approach the gate of this city, a multitude is coming out of the city. It's a widow woman. And she's got a multitude of people with her, and they're going to the cemetery to bury her only son. She's a widow, and her only son has died. And they're going to go to the cemetery to bury her only son. Now here you got a, you got a picture of a mixture. You know, we sing the song, mixture of joy and sorrow. In this life here, it's a life of ups and downs. It's a life of joy. It's a life of sorrow. Sometimes we're on the mountain. Sometimes we're in the valley. The Lord and his disciples here have been very uh, much on top of the mountain because they witnessed his miracles and they're rejoicing coming to the city. But they meet a people, a woman, a widow woman coming out of that town, going to the cemetery. Her heart is bleeding. Her heart is sorrowful. Her heart is, is grieving because her only son has died. Here you have a man that's dead, but just a little bit. He's going to be alive. And here you have a man that's alive. And a short period of time after this is going to be dead. The Bible says the Lord had compassion on her. We've seen the Lord having compassion on the multitudes. We've seen the Lord having compassion on individuals. The Lord had compassion on her. They all stopped and the Lord touched the buyer, B-I-E-R. And uh, the buyer back in that day like a coffin, but oftentimes it was not covered. It was not totally closed like we're used to seeing coffins today. And he said to the man, rise. And the man arose. The Lord touched the buyer because he had compassion upon the widow woman. And he raised her son from the dead. It's hard to imagine that scene, isn't it? It really is. It's just hard to imagine. I can see it in my mind. But what if I'd have been there? What if I'd have been one of those that was standing by and witnessing this? What would I think? I know this man is dead. We're going to the cemetery to place him in the ground. And the Lord stops it and the Lord just touches the buyer and says for the man to rise. And the man rises. And so they don't go to cemetery. One of these days you're going to make your last trip to the cemetery, I can assure you. One of these days you're going to make your last trip there. Nobody else is going to go there because the Lord's coming again. And the Lord's going to speak, and those who have gone to the cemetery, those bodies are going to rise, be glorified, reunited with their souls and spirits. This woman's not going to get to the cemetery. They turn around and go back. I, can, I just imagine the conversation. When she come back, somebody probably said, well, you sure got back early, didn't you? <laughs> well, I sure did. Well, how'd you get back so fast? You're not going to believe this. This is one of those, you better sit down before I tell you stories. <laughs> 
You ever had some news to somebody and you said, before I tell you, you better sit down. In other words, you might faint. This is one of those, you better sit down before I tell you stories. And she's going to tell them something like this. I suppose we never got there. This man named Jesus come along. And he raised my son from the dead. He's alive. And they said, well, you, you've got to be kidding. This is too good to be true. But no, it's true. <laughs> it's true. And there's been times where I've tried to explain to people the doctrine of God's grace. And they said, well, it's just too good to be true. How God could love people like that. It's true, brother. Believe it. It's true. And compassion's involved. Notice it back in Romans chapter 9 again. Come to verse 11. For the children have not yet been born, neither having done neither good nor evil, that the purpose of God according to election might stand, not of works, but of him that calleth. What shall we then say to these things? Shall we say there's unrighteous with God, that he loved Jacob and hated Esau? He said, God forbid. For the Lord said, I'll have mercy on whom I'll have mercy. I will have compassion on whom I'll have compassion. So therefore it's not of him that willeth, nor of him that runneth, but it's of God that showeth mercy. I told you mercy and compassion go hand in hand together. When you go to the book of Jeremiah, it says that the Lord's mercies were not consumed. His compassions fail not. And so the Lord's mercies, he were not consumed. You wonder sometimes, wonder why in the world the Lord continues to let this world go on? It's because he's a merciful God. And so the Lord's mercies, he were not consumed. His compassions fail not. There's been times my compassion has failed. How about you? Has been times your compassion failed? When you didn't have compassion, you should have. Listen to 1 John 3.17. In 1 John 3.17, he says, if anybody uh, sees, uh, has a brother and they see a brother in need and you have this world's goods and you don't have that brother, he says, how does the love of God in your heart? That's the test. How can you say the love of God's in your heart and you see a brother in need and yet there's no, no effort to help him? No effort to help him. Here comes along the good Samaritan. Here comes along this certain Samaritan and he sees him and he has compassion on him. And I believe compassion is, is, the, is what ignites the fire. Compassion is what gets the ball rolling. Compassion is what uh, gets things started in the right direction. Notice this. And a certain Samaritan, as he journeyed, came where he was. That's the first thing. He didn't go to the other side. The Levite and the priest did not have something the Samaritan had. They didn't have compassion. They went to the other side. They just went on the way. Left the man half dead. But the Samaritan comes along. As he journeyed, came where he was. That, that's the important thing. Galatians 6.10 says, As you have therefore opportunity, let us do good unto all men, especially the household of faith, as we have opportunity. The Levite had opportunity. He passed the other side. Priest had opportunity. He went on the other side. Who he found the Samaritan come along, he's got opportunity, and he stopped. Why? Because he saw him and he had compassion. And that compassion led to this. He went to him, bound up his wounds, 
pouring in oil and wine, set him on his own beast, brought him to an end, took care of him. Notice all these expressions. And on the morrow, when he departed, he took out two pence and gave them to the host and said unto him, Take care of him. And whatsoever thou spendest more, when I come again, I'll repay thee. Where did this man come up short? Nowhere. He went above and beyond, did he not? That's what we might say. Well, you went a, a, a beyond and above. You went a, above duty. But is that really possible? Can we really go above duty? <laughs> when you look in Matthew chapter 25, you're going to find a picture of the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. He shall come as a king sitting upon his throne of glory. He'll be like a shepherd with his sheep on the right hand and the goats on the left. And he'll say to the sheep on the right hand, Come you, my blessed, inherit the kingdom, prepare for you from the foundation of the world. For when I was hungry, you fed me. When I was thirsty, you gave me something to drink. When I was naked, you clothed me. I was a stranger, you took me in. I was a prisoner, and you came and visited me. And they said, Lord, when did we do these things? They weren't trying to keep a tally. They weren't trying to keep a record. They weren't trying to send in an article to the newspaper and say, I would just thought I'd let you know everything I've been doing for the last few weeks. <laughs> it wasn't necessary, was it? The Lord saw all that. But the goats on the left, the Lord said, when I was hungry, you fed me not, etc., etc. And they said, well, when didn't we do these things? But those on the right hand, why, why did they feed the Lord? Now, you know, when the, when the Lord said, when I was hungry, you fed me, we... How do, you feed, how do you feed the Lord? You do that by ministering one to another. That's how you do that. By loving one another, ministering one another, having compassion on one another. When you see a brother or sister in need, you reach out and you help. That's just like you're doing it to the Lord Jesus Christ himself. When I was hungry, you fed me. When I was thirsty, you, you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger and you took me in. I was a prisoner, you came and visited me. When I was sick, you helped me. They were reaching out. This identified them here as being God's children. That Samaritan sacrificed. He was riding upon that beast when he came, no doubt. But when he picked him up, when he was half dead, he put him upon his own beast. He cleansed his wound. He medicated his wound. He took wine. He took oil. And he treated him. Put him on his own beast. Brought him down to the end took care of him. And then when he departed the next day, he took out two pence and gave them to the host. He paid for what had taken place. Then he says, you take care of him. And once thou spendest more, when I come again, I'll repay you. And then the Lord asks the lawyer, which now of these three thinkest thou was neighbor unto him that fell among the thieves? And he said, he that showed mercy on him. The Lord taught him what a real neighbor was all about. He taught him what a biblical definition of a neighbor is all about. It's not the person who lives just right beside you. It's somebody in need that you know about and understand their condition. And you're willing to reach out. Why? Because compassion moves you. It's compassion, my friends, that motivates you. It's compassion that gets the ball started. And when this ball got started, look at all the steps that took place here. I'm going to go over them just one more time in closing here. A certain Samaritan, as he journeyed, came where he was, uh, was. And when he saw him, he had compassion on him. The Levite did not have compassion. The priest didn't have compassion. 
These were men emblematic of Jewish religion. They didn't have compassion. They passed to the other side. He went to him, bound up his wounds, pouring in oil and wine, set him on his own beast, brought him to an end, took care of him. And on the morrow, when he departed, he took out two pence, gave them to the host and said unto him, Take care of him, and whatsoever thou spendest more, when I come again, I'll repay thee. <laughs> what got it all started? Compassion. He was moved with compassion. We all have the ability to be moved with compassion. If you've been born of the Spirit of God, you're God's child. It lies right within your heart and soul. Put on therefore as the elect of God, bowels of mercies, and be long-suffering and forgiving one to another as God has forgiven us for Christ's sake. And when we see those who have the need here, it ought to move us to reach out and to try to help them. I'm going to tell you what, uh, I've been helped so many times. <laughs> if I had the time and you had the patience, we'd sit here for another hour and I would just begin to tell you what great things the Lord has done for me, how the Lord's had compassion upon me, and how many times I've been helped along life's pathway, along the journey of life. I would not be here today. You know, I was down there at uh, Bethany, and I cut my hand a little bit somehow or another, and it was, uh, you know, just a slightest scratch and caused the most bleeding sometime. And I looked like I had a serious injury when I didn't. And uh, so I washed it all up, and this brother went and got uh, uh, some Neospor, and he put on it, and, you know, and he put a little Band-Aid on it and everything. I said, Brother, I, I appreciate doing, you doing all this for me. He said, Brother Lawrence, I do a lot more than this for you. <laughs> you know, when somebody tells me something like that, it just, it just melts my heart. He said, I do a lot more than this for you. And I said, Well, I know you would, Brother, and I thank you for it. But what you did here took care of the situation that I needed at this present time. And I know this brother, and I know he was fully sincere in what he said. Thank you so much this morning for your prayers and your good attention. And as we select a hymn, what do you have, Brother Junior?